Okay, let's see. Uh, fit audience, though, few. Uh, two, three, four, seven, eight, Okay. Um, good weekend? Yes, good. Um, so, people read the Russell, and did you try the Hilbert? Okay, that's okay. Uh, we're way behind. It's fine. It's like uh, an arrow trying to get to a target, really. Um, did uh, what did you all think of the Russell? Um, too hard? Not hard enough? Just a, just Goldilocks, right? Yeah. What you didn't like it? I liked Hilbert a lot better than that. Really? How come? <laughs> well, part of the pro part of the problem is that uh, the Russell is two parts of his book, basically the beginning yeah. and the end. And, and you have to do teasers where it's like this is what's coming later. But yeah. Not yeah. yeah. Although. <laughs> Sorry. A lot of textbooks do that. Yeah. In chapter X, you'll find out that all of this is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, Part of what he's doing, though, is he's one of the inventors of modern set theory and also the person who figured out the problems with it. Um, what we were looking at last week, which is the catalog of um, books that list catalogs that don't list themselves, remember that? Mm -hmm. um, that's what's called Russell's Paradox. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a a severe constraint on the project of 20th century mathematics is um, if you think about sets, and we will think about sets, Russell calls them classes, eventually uh, the standard name for them was sets. If you think about sets, um, this is described as the set of all sets that don't contain themselves. And um, just that formula, the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, um, leads to a contradiction because if that's, that set contains itself, then it shouldn't, because it's only the set of sets that don't contain themselves. But if it doesn't contain itself, then it should, because it's the set of all sets that don't contain themselves. So either way, um, you're kind of toggling back and forth between that definition of what's in that set. The set of all sets that don't contain themselves both should contain itself in which case it shouldn't, in which case it should, in which case it shouldn't. Odd what? How far would you t take those toggles back and forth? Yeah. Ad infinitum, yeah. But it, um, um, but it doesn't converge. This is actually something we'll talk about. There's something called a super task, which in chapter 8 we'll talk about. No, we'll talk about it so at some point. <laughs> um, but super, super tasks are interesting. Um, and. Uh, they actually make the idea that things don't converge a little less comforting. Um, <laughs> a little less comforting, yes. Um, okay, but let's, just to summarize a little bit about what Russell is saying, just some crucial ideas, all of which are controversial. Russell, as I say, is one of the inventors of these ideas, um, and he's attempting to make sense of something that a lot of people think he gets wrong. Um, so one of them is, do people remember the difference between intention and extension when you're talking about sets? Okay, so it's one of the first things he talks about, and it's, a, it's an important distinction. That if you say something, his example is um, the set of all men who live in London. 
Um, and we know what that means. Um, we, can, we can understand that concept. Um, the other way of hooking onto that set would be to list all men who live in London. So you can have the set of people in this room who are wearing um, black shirts or dark colored shirts, let's say. Um, or we could list all the people in the room. I couldn't because I don't know your names yet. But we could list all the people in the room um, who are wearing dark colored shirts. In one case, it's very easy to say, um, sure, I know what that means. Anyone who's wearing a dark colored shirt would be in that list. Um, the other is you figure out who's in that list by looking around for people with dark colored shirts and listing them. One is called extensional because what you're doing is you are giving the entire list, you're extending the list, you're giving the entire list um, of members of a set and you're just saying these are who the members of the set are. The other is called intentional with an S, not T, I-N-T-E-N-S-I-O-N-A-L, um, because you're describing a property. Well, I won't say because, but in fact it is. You're describing some kind of inner property that all the things in this set has. So if, for example, I list, um, I don't know, uh, Obama, Biden, Reed and Boehner, um, that's a list of four people. I could describe that list as the list of um, the four people from president to the next three in line to, to the president, or the four people um, who are most likely to be president tomorrow. Um, something like that, the four most likely people to be president tomorrow, um, or the four heads of government or something. And I could say that without, without you necessarily having to know their names. I could say, how many people know all the justices on the Supreme Court? And if you know, do you? What are, who are they? Uh, I think I can do it. Uh, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan, uh, Breyer, Souter, uh, no. Uh, wait, I can get it, I can get it. Um, Thomas, Kennedy, um, uh, Scalia, uh, Alito, uh, forgetting someone. Did you say oh. Roberts? Oh, Roberts. Yeah. yeah. The Chief Justice. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, had he listed those people, how many of you would have known he was listing the Justice of the Supreme Court? And if you'd counted up to nine, how many of you would have known that he'd listed all of them? That there are nine? Did, how many people don't know that? Uh, you know it now, right? How many people didn't know it five minutes ago? Okay, so nine justices on the Supreme Court. Um, if I say the justices of, on the Supreme Court when Roosevelt was elected president, you know just what I mean, but you don't know who I mean. If I list nine justices um, that you kind of recognize are on the Supreme Court, and there are nine of them, you'll say, oh, the justices on the Supreme Court. So there are two ways, you could say, of... Um, of identifying a set. And one way is by description, more or less, by saying what's the set of. And the other is by listing or saying what's in the set. So if I say the set of primes up to 100, how many of you could just rattle them off? You could, George? Okay. Eventually, yeah, no, you could figure them out, but how many of you could rattle them off? 
Okay, no one. Good. Um, but you know exactly what I you know exactly what what I mean if I say the prime's up to a hundred, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you don't know exactly which I mean. So if I take seventy one, for example, you might or might not know right off that that's a prime. Um, if you don't know it right off, you might say, is it divisible by, by 3? Well, 7 and 1 is 8, so it isn't. Um, but you might or might not know right off that it's a prime. You would know that it was a candidate, and then you could figure out whether it appeared in the list. So we could say there's a difference between what's, what I mean and which ones I mean. And that's the difference between, again, you could say a description of, what's in, uh, of what would be in the set and an actual list of things that are in the set. Now one of the things, so that's the difference between extensional and intentional. Extensional means just list them all. No matter how extensive that list is, list them all. So if I were to say 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23, 29, etc. Um, but I didn't say etc. I actually went all the way up to 97. That would be the list of primes below 100. Or I could just more easily say the list of primes below 100. Um, you can describe, you can list. Listing is unique. That is to say, if I give you a true list of the primes below 100, what I would be giving you is something that could only be described, uh, that, that um, couldn't vary in any way if I gave you the whole list. Now, but let's say that I, that I say um, people in this classroom with hearts, literally hearts, not, doesn't mean you have to be a decent human being, um, but people in this classroom with hearts and if I say people in this classroom with lungs, I'd be talking about the same set of people, right? Or if I were to say, um, so, okay, so stop there. I'd be talking about the same set of people. Everyone here who has a heart has lungs. Everyone here who has lungs has a heart. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have both because you really couldn't. Um, so, but nevertheless, I'm describing two different things because you could, for example, have animals that have hearts but don't have lungs. Like what? Anyone know? Worms. Do worms have hearts? Yes. They do? Okay, worms. I was thinking birds. Uh, okay, some of them is fine. Some is part of the point. Um, but birds don't have lungs. They have air sacs, um, which are different. Um, so, Having a heart and having a lung, having lungs isn't the same thing, or doesn't, isn't even normally um, necessarily applied to the same individuals. Some can have hearts but not lungs. Um, I don't know if anything can have lungs without hearts, but probably, eh, probably not. Um, but it's not going to be the same thing. So if I say people in this room with hearts and people in this room with lungs, that turns out to be the same set of people, but it didn't necessarily have to be so. It wasn't logically the case that that was the same set of people. Um, if I say um, mammals with two lungs and mammals with one stomach, um, those wouldn't be the same list because cows have several stomachs, for example. 
um, two lungs with several stomachs. So in all those cases, I can give descriptions. And if I say mammals with um, two lungs, you could figure out which mammals have two lungs, and then you could list them. Um, but that won't necessarily, although it could be, the same set as the set of mammals, let's say, with at least two legs. Um, it could be that, um, that those would be the same, or it could be that they wouldn't. Or it could be that mammals with two lungs and mammals with two legs would turn out to be the same thing. Not because lungs and legs go together, but because as it happens, as biology dictated it, those were the same list. So the point is, if I give you an intentional description, if I say, go on a scavenger hunt and figure out everyone at Brandeis who is riding a unicycle today, um, that's a set of people. Everyone at Brandeis riding unicycles today, that's a set of people. Um, but who they are, you don't know. Um, but if you looked at all the surveillance cameras, you could figure it out. And then, so by giving you a description, you could figure out the, I, if I give you the description, you could figure out the list that belonged to that description. But the list is really what makes up the set. The description is a way, you could say, of abbreviating or naming or picking out or referring to those things that are in a certain set. So if I say um, the primes below 100, you would have to do some calculating to figure out what all of them were. Um, you could do it in your head probably to 13 or 17 or 19, but around 21, you'd have to remember that that was 3 times 7. Um, 25, you'd realize it was um, ended with a 5. 27, you'd have to remember that that was 3 times 9. You'd have to do some remembering to figure out what belonged in that list and what didn't. So the set is the list. And there are ways of determining whether something should be put in that list or not. One is descriptive or intentional, Russell says, and the other is the list itself. Um, so that is a crucial difference. Some people think that the only right way to define a set is the list of things that are in it. And as soon as you start describing it, as soon as you start saying things like the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, you're not talking about a list of anything. You have a description that just doesn't make sense, like saying this sentence is false. Um, it's not that it's false. It's not that it's true. It's just nonsense. Um, so the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, who cares? There is what you want are lists of things. And if you find those lists of things, then you can say anything that you can find, any bunch of objects you can find, and you and, um, you can just pile together in your mind for whatever reason or for no reason at all becomes a set. So a set is just whatever collection you want to make of anything. You don't have to be able to describe that collection. All you have to be able to do is say what's in it. That's one theory of sets, is that all a set is is what's in it, are the things that are in it, and the fact that you're calling them a set, that you're bundling them, to use Russell's word, together. Does that make sense to people? Yes, no, sort of? Um, more on the sort of side? Um, remember all the things that Borges sees in the Aleph? 
remember all the things that you might read in um, a book in the Library of Babel. Um, one of the things that Borges says when he's listing the things that he sees in the Aleph, one of the things that's so great about that catalog is that they don't seem to have anything to do with each other. Um, that is photographs from 1922, um, um, your face, um, you know, we can invent things, but just try to think of heterogeneous things. Or take, um, we talked about Cole Porter earlier here today and all of you looked blank. Um, but take um, something like um, Dante, the poet, is you could put in a set, as Cole Porter in fact does put um, in a set, with the nominee of the Republican Party. And those things are in the same set as the salary that Greta Garbo gets. And those things are in the same set as the time that the um, winner of the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby ran the Kentucky Derby. So all those things seem really different from each other. Um, Garbo's salary, the poet Dante Alighieri, um, the, what, um, the, sorry, the Republican nominee for the presidency, and the time that the winner of the Kentucky Derby ran the Kentucky Derby. Another thing on that set is Jimmy Durante's nose. Another thing in that list is cellophane. The name of a pygmy elephant. The name of a pygmy elephant is in that list? Is it? Oh, you put it in there, but Cole Porter didn't. Okay, so all those, Cole Porter has, has, has listed all these things um, in a song. It's one of his, he, he, he specialized in listing songs. Um, and this is a song that listed all those things. And the point about them is you say, okay, what do all these things have in common? Um, but you don't need them to have anything in common to be in a set. Or the thing they have in common, you could say, is Cole Porter listed them. That's all they need to have in common. These are things that Cole Porter listed in a particular song. That's all they need to have in common. Um, the song has about 30 or, other four, 30 or 40 other things um, in the list. Um, and they are as unlike the Republican presidential nominee and Dante as Dante is unlike cellophane and as cellophane is unlike Jimmy Durante's nose and to take another um, thing in that list, um, as um, unlike Jimmy Durante's nose is to Mahatma Gandhi. Um, all of those things are in the list. Um, and they're totally unlike each other in any way except for one, which is that they're in the list. Is that a tautology? It's just come up, come up with a list of heterogeneous things. And the one thing they have in common is that they're in this list of heterogeneous things. So is this, is this like, does this strike you as confusing, bullshit, interesting? Um, what's the point? Uh, who cares about sets? If sets are just, just random lists, why should we care? I'm just curious what, how sets relate to What do you mean what we're talking about? How do sets relate to math? Well, we'll get there in a minute. Um, but it's not that easy. So the first thing to notice, this is, this, we're actually talking about how these things relate to literature. Um, but that's part of the point of this course. Um, it's not that easy to come up with heterogeneous lists. Um, 
How about three people try to come up with three things that have no obvious correlation with each other? Uh, raise your hands. Anyone? Can you do it, Amanda? Uh, three things. Yeah, that are that are that are random. That are genuinely random. The drink that is in your cup. Okay. The color of my hair and today's weather at precisely six p.m. Okay. Um, do you feel? perfectly confident that those really aren't just associating on the same idea in some way or other? They are, though. Yeah, they have something to do with your environment, oh, right? They're Brandeis. Yeah, they're all at Brandeis. But you may feel, no, you may feel that, um, that they're reasonably different from each other. Um, how many people have read Foucault's The Order of Things? Um, or know about it? Or know who Foucault is? Michel Foucault. Well, he begins with a quotation from Borges, which unfortunately I won't be able to get right. But it's about um, a famous Chinese, um, Borges quotes a famous Chinese encyclopedia, um, which at one point has a catalog of various things, which include something like um, animals that um, die before adolescence, um, things that a long way off look like flies, um, and um, books with an odd number of pages. It's something like that. And the point is, what Foucault is interested in is the sheer randomness of that list, that it's kind of the opposite of the, does everyone know what the association of ideas is? That is, it's a psychoanalytic technique, or it used to be, that um, I give you a word, and the first word that pops into your head is what you say, and that what happens after a while is there's a pattern in the words that are, that are popping into your head, and then I know you. Um, so you know this game, right? So it's, it's like um, I say bed and you say sex. Um, and I say, um, I don't know, I say restaurant and you say first date. Um, and I say, don't say Freud. And yeah, and, and I say, um, I say whatever, and you, and, and you come up with something that has to do with erotic life, then something's on your mind. Um, and you might come up with a list of other things. But the point is it's actually really hard. Um, someone else want to try three things that are really not related to each other, that are, that are random? Yeah. Um, a specific blade of grass in some garden in some lawn at Versailles in pre-revolutionary France. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> the number 6,892.43. And... It's hard. The third episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> you had me until then. Then you totally connected them. Okay, that works. Um, don't go to Doctor Who, then it's easy. Um, yeah. Oh Okay, good. All made of atoms. All made of atoms. But you can always do that. Um, the point is, is there something that you can pretty much do where you really do feel like that was unexpected, um, and then you'd have an unexpected list, and that's part of the point. Yeah. But either way, it's it's a collection of things that you thought of in the last five seconds. Yeah. No. Yeah. Like, so there, there are always ways to, um, uh, it's a fallacy to say that they're random. 
Yeah, but here I'm, I'm actually asking for something psychological, which is, which is actually to do a little bit of introspection, which is when you try to come up with a list of random things, you know, and there are games where you have to do this, yeah. you know, where you're saying, oh, I know, I know, and then we could, we could do something really random, and then suddenly you're baffled, but what really random thing can you do? Randomness is hard, psychologically hard, and you can always show that something isn't really random, um, but um, that there's something that connects them. They're all made of atoms. They were all mentioned um, in this classroom. Um, they're all things that from a long way off look like flies because everything does. Um, it's really hard. I mean, in, in life we're always, when we're trying to be clever or funny, we always try to come up with random things and it always turns out to be harder than you think it's going to be. Um, but any set of random things you come up with, no matter how genuinely random the set is, it's a set. You pile them together and now they're together and they, they make a set. Yeah? Well, I was going to say that I think um, they aren't all necessarily made of atoms. Because if you have something theoretical, like mm -hmm. the time it took for a horse to finish a race, Yeah. I mean, if you're saying the, the time on the scoreboard or whatever the you know, stopwatch, Sure, that's that's a physical thing, but the idea of a number is not a physical thing, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you say something like the Parthenon, forty-two. I'll always say forty-two. That way, you cover all three matter, energy, and information. Okay. So, but <laughs> so they are associated. Yeah. Okay, so they all appear in your mind or something like that. Um, it's nevertheless the case that the way we tend to think is we think in terms of um, descriptions and in terms of trying to make sense of any random collection of objects. It was easy enough for me to give you Cole Porter's random collection of objects because the way he found those objects was they did have something in common, but I didn't tell you what they had in common. Um, what they all have in common is that they're examples of the top, um, or at least that they appear in a song in which he's talking about things that are the top. So the nose on the great Durante, um, because Jimmy Durante had a very famously large nose, and Inferno's Dante, because um, Dante wrote the Inferno, they're the best in their class, they're the tops. Um, the time of a derby winner and a turkey dinner. Those are also tops in their class. Um, the uh, castles in Spain and cellophane, those two are tops. Um, and the one thing that's not the top but that's at the bottom, at least when Cole Porter's writing it, is he writes, I'm the nominee, or he sings, but I won't. Um, I'm the nominee, do you know it, George? I'm the nominee of the GOP or GOP, but if baby on the bottom, you're the top. It's actually um, a crypt cryptically obscene song, which is part of the point. Um, but what he keeps saying to the, the addressee of that song is, I'm the bottom, but you're the top. Um, you're the Tower of Pisa. You're the smile on the Mona Lisa. Um, all of those things have something in common. They are the best of their kind. Um, 
The other thing they have in common is that they rhyme pairwise or sometimes trio-wise. Um, so they can rhyme with something else that it's the best of its kind. And what you could say is it's a list of things, all of which are the best of their kind, and each one of which can rhyme with at least one other thing that is the best of its kind. Um, but the pleasure of it is the randomness of the things that appear in that list. So any list of anything, that's a set. Any description, anything that makes the set seem intellectually coherent, that's something that some people think is added on to the idea of a set. And there are many ways that you can make things intellectually coherent. Um, you can say that um, the fact that womb and tomb rhyme, um, a fact about um, Eng the English language, um, that's accidental, but it seems to make sense because it gets the whole life cycle into those two words. So here's a set with two members, the rhyme, womb, and tomb, and um, it's just two random things. But they rhyme. Okay, so it's two random things that rhyme. So what? Oh, no, but also they seem to be uh, rhymed words which describe the whole life cycle. Um, like sperm and worm, another set of rhymed words that describe the whole life cycle. Um, so here are things that are random that the mind makes sense of. If you think about how poetry works, rhymed poetry especially, what poets do, what Cole Porter does, for example, is takes things that are accidentally in a set with each other, things that rhyme, and finds a way to say that it makes sense intellectually that you collect them together. That it makes sense that the idea of love and seeing a dove fly, or to quote the artist known as Prince once again, um, what happens when doves die is something you think about when you're thinking about the sadness of love. Um, it makes sense that doves go with love um, because you can make sense of it, but it was presented to you randomly by language. There's no reason that dove rhymes with love except an accident of language, and accidents of language form sets. It's an accident of language which the human mind can make intentional sense of. So there's something extensional, this accident of language, and then something intentional, we use our minds to make sense of it. So this idea of sets and the extensional and the intentional idea of sets is something that we confront every minute of our lives. But the idea itself is a simple one, but one that nevertheless you need to um, get clear on. A set is a list of things, or a set is a bunch of things. And whatever you can say about all and only those things, there's always going to be more than one thing you can say about all and only those things. That's not what makes it into a real world thing, which is just those objects. It's how the mind gloms onto those objects. So Russell wants to say 
that the intentional idea of sets, that is, what our, how our mind thinks about them all at once, is more basic than the extensional idea of sets, which is the things themselves in a collection. And a reason to think this, although as I say, a lot of people will doubt it, but a reason to think this is that if, again, if I say all Academy Award winners, you're not going to know who they all are, but you'll know just what I mean. Again, you won't know who I mean. You'll know some of who I mean, but only some. But you'll know just what I mean if I say the set of all Academy Award winners. So it's a lot easier to talk about the set of all Academy Award winners as an idea than as a list. The list is a pain and is full of stuff that you will never remember and will quickly overflow your memory. The idea, the set of all Academy Award winners, then if I point to someone and say, hey, she won the Academy Award, um, you won't say, oh yeah, I knew that she was in the list in my mind already. You'll say, oh, that's cool. Um, or not, depending on who she is. Um, but the idea is a way that we handle lists even if we don't know the whole of them. We get a handle on them. This is particularly important when we talk about infinite sets. Because if I say something like the set of all primes, that's a set with an infinite number of members. There are an infinite number of primes, as Euclid proved. Does everyone know that? That there's an infinite number of primes? We, we literally talked about this proof today in my discrete math class. Did you? Yes. Um, and what did you say about it? What did I say personally? You plural. Ah. See, the class, I don't know who is in the class, but I can I still talk about the class. Um, well, we went, um, actually, maybe I have this in my notes. Hang on a second. Um, yeah, I actually have the proof right here um, about how um, if you, basically it's a proof by contradiction. Right? Yeah. You suppose that the number of primes is finite. And the um, and then you say that the set of all if you multiply all the set of primes there will be some n that like that equals the set of all primes plus one that cannot possibly be divisible by any of those primes and so that n must therefore be prime because it doesn't have any prime it doesn't have any div divisors and so but it's not in the set that you just constructed so you have to add another one on to the end. And yeah. Just keep going forever. That's the haiku you said. Yeah. So does everyone did everyone get that? Okay. So the idea is, um, let's say you had the set of all primes. Let's say it turned out that only three numbers were prime: two, three, and five. Everyone knows two is the only even prime, and everyone knows that one isn't a prime, just for technical reasons, but it really isn't. So let's say that you have the set of all primes. And it turned out, whoa, what a cool universe. There are only three primes, and I don't have to worry about this stuff. Two, three, and five. So what it means for, for a number to be a prime is that it has no divisors between it, except itself and one. Everybody knows that. So what makes 13 a prime is that two doesn't go into it, three doesn't go into it, 
we don't even have to look at four because two doesn't go into it. Five doesn't go into it. We don't have to look at six because we've already looked at two and three. And we're way beyond how far we have to go, but seven doesn't, have, doesn't go into it. Eight we don't have to look at because two didn't go into it. Nine we don't have to look at because three didn't go into it. Ten we don't have to look at because two and five didn't go into it. Eleven doesn't go into it, and twelve we don't have to look at, right? Now, what it means for those numbers not to go into 13 is that if you divide 13 by any of those numbers, what do you get? Sorry? A, a death warrant. No, I know you said a decimal. Um, a remainder. Divide 5 into 13, and you get 2 remainder. 3. <laughs> Good. Yes. Divide 12 into 13, and you get? Right. So, so one way you could say that something is a prime is that if you take any number greater than 1 but less than that number and divide it into that number, you will always get a remainder. Okay? That that's, means that there are no um, perfect divisors. You always get a remainder. So a sign that something is a prime is that numbers less than it don't go into it. So let's say there are only three primes, 2, 3, and 5. And what we can then say is, OK, let's multiply 2 times 3 times 5, and we get 30. And what we know, because we've just multiplied 2 times 3 times 5, is that 2 goes into 30. Why? Because we just did the multiplication. Of course it does. And 3 goes into 30, and 5 goes into 30. Um, so multiply 2 times 3 times 5 equals 30. Now let's add 1. So now we get 31. Now if we go 2 into 31, what will the remainder be? 1, because it's 2 times 3 times 5 plus 1. If we go 3 into 31, what's the remainder? 1. If we go 5 into 31, what's the remainder? 1. Let's say that now that there are 100 primes and we think we found all the primes in the universe, um, and we designate those primes, or let's say they're 26 primes, and we just give them, we name them A, B, C through Z, now let's multiply A times B times C, et cetera, times Z, and we get a new number. Let's call it digamma. Um, and we add 1 to digamma. So it's A times B times C, et cetera, times Z plus 1. A into that number will have a remainder of B, C, et cetera. So all the primes divided into that number and none of them will go into that number. So what, is, what does that prove about that number? That it's a prime. So if you think that you have all the primes, Euclid says, if you had all the primes, you can't, because I could then construct a number that none of those numbers went into, and therefore that number would be prime. So here's a quick question for you. It's actually not a quick question. Think about it if you don't know the answer. Is that a really convenient way of producing primes then? Can you just take a bunch of primes, 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, let's say, multiply them all together and add 1, and have a prime? Yeah. Look. Well, I was going to say, I mean, at first it's kind of handy, but you realize that you have to find all the primes in between. Yeah. And it won't just give you the next one. It'll give you some other one way out there. Actually, it's not it won't necessarily give you a prime. 
So the point is that argument that you would have a prime by multiplying primes together and adding one isn't true. It would be true if you had all the primes. Then I could show you how to construct another prime which would prove you didn't have all the primes. Because there could be a prime higher than 13. I mean, I forget the first, prime, the first composite that works this way. Um, you want an extra credit assignment? Come up with it. The first composite number that takes the form of a series of primes in order, starting with two and not skipping any, plus one, which is composite. Do you know? No, it'll be two and seven. No, no, you're skipping three and five, though. Um, why, no, but why, if you had all the primes, would the, the composite of that plus one be a prime? Because if you divided any, you have all the primes. So you take every single prime and divide it into their multiple plus one, and you have a remainder of one. So none of those primes goes into your new number, which means your new number is prime. And you wouldn't need any of the other numbers because the other numbers are made up of primes. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, does, are some of you sickened by this? <laughs> You're sickened by it. Um, okay, so yeah, you get a little bit of extra credit, anyone who comes up with the first composite. Yeah. Uh, two. No, not, three, right, not right now. Not right now. Bring it in. Bring it in. No, yeah, other people. Yeah, other people want, okay. want a chance too. So. Bring it in tomorrow if you want for a little bit of extra credit. It'll be good for you. Um, first composite number that can be written as a series of primes in order starting as two multiplied together and added one, two. Does everyone get what I'm asking? <laughs> okay, try two plus one. Imagine there's only one prime and it's two. Now add one and you get three. Does two, two go into three? No. So there can't be just one prime, namely two. Okay, maybe there are two primes, two and three. So we say two times three is six, and add one, that's seven, but seven's prime. So um, now let's try two, three, and five. So we get six, two times three is six, times five is 30, plus one is 31. All right, let's say two, three, five, and seven. This may actually be the answer. Um, is it? Do you know? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Uh, two, three, five, and seven. Yeah, so two, two, three, two times three times five is 30 times seven is 210. Add one and you get 211. Is 211 prime? Wait, I got the digits mixed up. I was thinking 121. No, it's uh, seven times 30 is 210. So is 211 prime? I think it might be. Um, well, it does sound prime, but that won't do. Okay, seven, do, seven doesn't go into it by, by hypothesis. Eleven doesn't go into it, we know, because of a trick. Thirteen doesn't go into it, does it? One sixty-nine. What is it? Does, you think it is prime. Okay, so two times three times five times seven plus one is prime. What about two times three times five times seven times eleven plus one? Well, we won't do that now. Um, so, all right, so good. You still have this, this possible extra credit assignment. Um, if you don't know and you don't care, that's fine also. You don't have to know. You should care, but you don't have to know. Um, okay, but we can say there are an infinite number of primes. And now we can describe something, namely prime numbers. And we can say the set of prime numbers 
we can say the set of prime numbers without having any idea what most of its members are. We would only know, roughly speaking, 0% of its members because the number of primes that human beings have found is, I think, only in the millions or billions. Um, and yet there are an infinite number of them. If you try to pick a random number, not a, um, yeah, just a random number on the number line. Random number between zero and infinity. Pick one. Someone. Random. Zero and infinity. Integer. 17. Integer. 17. Not random, it, because it's in the zeroth percentile of all the numbers. Pick one that's not in the zeroth percentile, because you just don't want these tiny numbers that are on, just clustered around zero. You want a you want a really random number, something that looks like what most 22. of the numbers are. What? Forty-two. Nope. Too close to zero. Yeah. Omega. That. <laughs> okay, omega is good. Six, six, six. But but a number that you can actually specify, that you C. know how to construct. C. Too close to zero. Second go-to number. Too close to zero. Yeah. Count. Graham's number. Way too close to zero. It's all in zeroth percentile. Zeroth percentile. Really? Yeah, it's a zeroth percentile. It's any number you can name is in the zeroth percentile. Yeah. So is it even clear that we can talk about numbers at all when the only numbers we can think of, the only numbers we can name, the only numbers that we have any access to, are just really from the point of view of infinity, they're just at zero. They're in the zeroth percentile of all numbers. So clearly arithmetic has no utility. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> except, except where we live, except in the cluster that we live in. Okay, so we do talk about prime numbers. We talk about even numbers. We talk about odd numbers. And yet most of them, we don't know what they are. If someone gives you a number, you can probably say whether it's even or odd. If someone says something to you like Googleplex plus 14, even or odd? Even. even. Yeah, because we know that Googleplex ends with a zero. Do people know what Google, um, Googleplex is? It's a big number. One with a Google zeros after it. Yeah, do people know what Google is? Not the... One with a thousand zeros. With a hundred. So Google is one with a hundred zeros, and Googleplex is one with Google zeros after it. Um, so it's a biggish number, but really in the zeroth percentile. Um, but if I say, what about the 142nd millionth prime, um, even or odd, do you know? Uh, All right, good. You do know. Um, what if I say the 145th millionth um, Bernoulli number? You don't know. How could you? Um, you couldn't. Well, maybe you could if you were Pascal, but otherwise you couldn't. Um, it's uh, you, the seashell thing, the pinecone thing. Um, yeah, three, five, eight, thirteen, twenty-one, etc. Yeah. So you would know what I meant, but you wouldn't know what you would know. You wouldn't know which I meant. You wouldn't know much about it. Okay, so what we're trying to do, what this course is partly about, is talking about the size of infinite sets. And so one of the things, this is what I promised you last week, was the um, way of understanding why you would say that 
the number of even numbers and the number of integers is the same. And that's what Russell starts describing at the beginning of, uh, in the first half of the reading for today. So I just want to go over in, some, I hope what are somewhat simpler terms, the really deep things about counting that he is um, pointing out. So what we say is that everybody knows how to count. It's something that you learn very early, at least in our culture. In some cultures, you don't. There are said to be cultures where people can't count over the number three, um, where the, um, there, there's also some skepticism about this. Um, but the idea that um, they have the concept one, two, and then anything more than two is many or several. Yeah. Um, how many things do you think you, can, you guys can count at a glance? Um, let's say someone drops some coins on the desk in front of you. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, arrangement will matter. Um, you think that if you had a tenth of a second flash of ten objects, you would know it was ten? I probably could, yeah. Really? Anyone have a bunch of pennies? I probably do. Bring them out. Well, now we know it could be 10. No, 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 no. It's just a random number. Um, throw up and catch them. Okay, I have a bunch of coins. And some of them are euros. <laughs> okay. Oh, I can't do it. All right, all right. Okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> what number in the alphabet is U? Too late. Oh, I have a bunch of euros. All right. Did you figure it out or did you know? Yes. Yes, yes which? 19? Oh, you guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess. 21st. I don't know. Oh, but it's 19. Makes sense. That's a pretty good one. I can't do that. Yeah, I can't do that. Here. You should put a bunch together and have them copy yours. Stack them already? No, no, no. I can do it by the way. Should I be looking? Yeah. Uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Guys. Okay, ready? Seven. All right. Pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I, <have a> <laughs> I had to count. And you think you go up to ten? I think so. Um, all right, ten quarters. is five. That was cool. Sorry? That was cool. quarters. That's all right. He's, he so proved his point. <laughs> um, I, can I, can, I, can count, I can count coins really fast, about three for seven. <laughs> okay, um, 47%. Um, the, um, 10 is probably what you would think of as a limit of what you can see as a glance. If it's arranged, you know, the reason cards and dice are arranged as they are is that you see it as a shape. And you know the 5 is going to be in the quincunx shape on a die, you know, dot, dot, dot in the center, dot, dot. Um, but for most people, if they see seven things, they'll, in their minds, even if they count really fast, they'll divide it into four and three. Four is something most people can see at a glance. Three is something most people can see at a glance. I did that. You did, you did it into four and three. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were actually not quite seeing it as a glance, at a glance, but it was a second step. I saw all of them, and then I broke it up. Broke it up into four and three. Yeah, so we can mostly do that. Could you have done, set, could you have done 14 into four and three and four and three, do you think, at a glance? I don't know. I was surprised I did seven that easily. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so visually, 
it seems to be the case. This is just an interesting fact about the human brain. Visually, it seems to be the case um, that we can see something like most people can see something like four at a glance. Um, beyond four, you start breaking up your glance into two glances. And beyond 10 or so, um, almost no one can see stuff at a glance. There are savants who can, but mostly people can't. Yeah? I remember reading about a study um, where they showed that it took uh, a significantly longer amount of time for people to recognize four objects than three. Yeah, okay, good. And this worked with babies as well. That, like, they were like pre-verbal babies. Yeah. Um, obviously, they can't ask them how many, but what they were doing is they were doing eye tracking. Right. And so they determined that the babies would spend more attention on collections of four objects and larger than they Neat. Were okay, that's really helpful. Okay, but there are other ways that we process numbers. Okay, did anyone count consciously? If you did, drop out. Okay, those of you who didn't count, do it. Just clap as many times as I clapped and count as you clap. It was 13 actually. But if you do it, if you, if you hear claps or if you hear bells tolling, um, if, for example, you're um, uh, near a church and suddenly you, you're, suddenly you notice that the bell is tolling but you didn't notice it's starting, you can still figure out what time it is because your brain will have taken it in. You can replay it in your mind and count as you replay. What? Is that a code memory or just your ability to recreate the sound? Well, but what you're recreating is something that you've taken in somehow as a totality and then um, can recreate. Um, it may take work, but you haven't been, but you somehow, some part of your brain counted it, perceived it as a, as a number, which you then have to make accessible to another part of your brain. Um, even more than that, if you go to a flight of steps, you should do this going up and not down, um, but if you go to a flight of steps, glance at it and close your eyes and then walk up those steps, your body will actually be pretty good up to maybe 20 or so at knowing when you're, hit, when you're about to reach the top step. No way. Yeah. Like you right. told us to do it, it's going up. It's yeah, don't around. count them. <laughs> if you count the steps, it's... Yeah, that's why I said go up, not down. Um, but no, your body's pretty good. Or if, you know, if you're a pole vaulter um, or a long jumper or something, um, you're actually pretty good at figuring out um, where to take off so that you will, that you will take off of the, um, on the right foot. So we have different ways of measuring quantity um, of which counting objects that we see visually and turning them into a numeral, that's actually what we're least efficient at. What you did is what we're least efficient at. Knowing how many times we heard a beat, we're more efficient at that. Knowing how many steps we have to take, physically we know how many steps we have to take. That doesn't mean that we could give the numerical value. It's just that we know when we're there. So one thing about counting is you could say that what it means to count something is to know when you're there, when you've got to the end. Um, and giving a name to the number of objects, that's harder. That's a harder thing to do. That's why you can only do four, three, or seven. Yeah? 
I think I once heard about a study where some scientists figured out that some species of ant find their way back to the colony by counting how many steps they took on their way out and then just sort of undoing them all. Interesting. And they found this out by cutting the ants' legs shorter and giving some of the Oh, giving them longer steps. <laughs> Charming! They had longer steps or shorter steps, and then there were many very confused ants. <laughs> Confused and mutilated. Maybe that's why they were confused. Oh my God, a talking ant. Uh, yeah, science. So you think it would have been harder for me if it was significantly harder if it was eight? I think so. Yeah, I think it would have. All right. So here is the thing. Everyone counts. It's part of human culture to count. Um, but generally, if you think about what counting is, um, what counting really is, the first thing you want to know is um, whether two things can be brought into correspondence with each other. So let's say, um, this is what I did when I handed out the, the da Vinci quotation. Um, let's say you want to know whether there are as many people in a theater as there are seats in the theater, or whether there are more people or whether there are more seats. You don't need to count. It would, be, in fact, be extremely inefficient to count the number of seats and to count the number of people, um, and then to see which is greater or whether they're equal. It would be much easier to have everyone sit down. And if there were empty seats after everyone sat down, then there would be more seats than people. If there were people who were not sitting in seats, if all the seats were taken and then there were more people who were not in those seats, there would be more people than seats. If every seat was full but no one was not in a seat, then there would be as many people as there were seats. So the really crucial idea, and it's what we do when we count, is we know that we have as many fingers on our left hand as on our right hand, as many fingers as we have toes, as many lungs as we have legs. Um, that idea of as many is the most basic idea in counting. So when I did the clapping, when I went, can you do it? What if you weren't counting, what you were doing is stopping when you got to as many. That's the natural way of doing it. When you hear a bunch of beats and then you reproduce it, you don't count either time. You don't say one, two, I mean, you guys probably did because, because we already did this exercise before. But you don't say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if you do, the seven is always confusing and the eleven's always confusing, right? Um, but you don't say that. You're just waiting till your brain says, yes, that's as many. So the first thing we have, a, a more basic idea than counting one, two, three, four, five, is saying, no, 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 yes. See, I didn't even count when I said no, 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 yes, but that was five, right? Four no's and a yes. So instead of counting one, two, three, four, five, it's basically the answer is, have I gotten to the end of the sequence yet? No, 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 yes. And it's the brain tells you, there, you've got to as many. 
And that is the most basic concept for counting, is the idea of the as many. Not the idea of what the number of things is, but that two things are such, two, two um, groups of things are such that there are as many in one group as in the other. That's when we say that those two groups have the same number of things in them. Two groups will have the same number of things in them if there are as many in one group as in the other. And you don't, know, you don't have to know what that number is. That is to say, we have the concept of as many without needing the concept of numerals, of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. If you counted up what the letter U was, you went A, B, how many people, how many people did when I asked you what U was in the alphabet? Joy, you said 19, right? 21. Okay, so you go A, B, well, let's do M because that's Beckett's favorite and it's 13. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. So, what letter is that? 13th. 13th. How do you know? 5 through 5. Okay, because you're counting on your fingers. So, what you're doing is you're saying, I know if I have two hands and then three more fingers, that's 13. So what I did was I put A, B, C, D, E, first hand, F, G, H, I, J, second hand, K, L, M. Okay, two hands, five each time, plus three fingers. So I said there are as many letters as two hands plus three more fingers, which I could take in at a glance. And each hand is five, so two hands is 10, plus three is 13. If you're counting on your fingers, what you're actually doing is you are getting a number of fingers which is as many as the things you're counting, right? Let's say I ask you, well, let's do the Supreme Court justices again. Um, who are they? Scalia? Alito? Alito. Alito. Sotomayor? Roberts. Okay. Kennedy, Kagan. No, we said Roberts. Who? Ginsburg. Thomas. The last justice. Breyer. So now we say, good, now I know there are no more because I've done one Supreme Court justice per finger. I now know that this is nine fingers and there were nine Supreme Court justices. But what I'm doing is a one-to-one -one correspondence. Whenever you count on your fingers, you're doing what's called a one-to-one -one correspondence or simply a correspondence of a single justice or a single letter of the alphabet and so on to a single finger. And then we can look at our fingers with which we're familiar and we say 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 just like that. But what we're doing when we count is first of all figuring out as what two things turn out to be as many of one as of the other. Now early on in your life you memorize numerals and so you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 
and you know how to do that. And then you see a bunch of objects on a table, or you hear a bunch of claps in a classroom. And what you do is you associate the first clap with the first number in this series that you've memorized, one. And the second with the second number, two. And the third with the third number, three. And when you have gotten as many numbers as claps, your brain says, good, that's as many as there are. Then you stop, and you could look at what number you've reached. And now you know how many there are. That as many euros as there were was seven. That as many claps as there were the first time was 13, the second time was 15. But what it means to count, or here's what's really important. When you say that there are as many seats as butts in a theater, what you don't need to do is to know how many. You don't need a third set of objects that you put into relation with seats and butts. All you need in the theater is seats and butts. Sorry? Because of the one-to-one -one correspondence yeah. between a seat and a butt. Yeah. And then you can say if every butt has a seat under it and every seat has a butt on it, then there are as many seats as there are butts. And there's one butt per person. Yeah. Yeah, but it's all we want to say is seats, seats and butts. Now, if you want to know how many seats and butts there are, you're suddenly bringing in a third collection of objects. Numbers. Numbers. But you don't need them to know that, there's one, that there are as many seats as there are butts. You don't need the numbers to know that. You can now bring in a third collection of objects, namely numbers, and find out how many numbers you need so that there's one number per seat per butt. And then you can know how many seats there are and how many butts there are, but you don't need to know that. And if you do do that, you're still using the same idea of the as many. This is really important for infinite sets, because if you talk about infinite sets, we can't really say how many, except through um, uh, vague symbolism, we can't say how many finite numbers there are, or how many natural numbers there are, or how many whole numbers there are. But what we can say is that there are as many whole numbers as there are even numbers. Now, it would be easier, let's, let's take an easier version of this. Do people see, do, or do you need proof to you, that there are as many even numbers as there are odd numbers? Is it obvious that there are as many even numbers as odd numbers? OK, so let's say then um, that what an even number is is any number that can be written as 2 times n, where n is any whole number. OK, an even number, every even number is the double of a whole number. That is not the double as in, oh, my double, but the double of a whole number in that you're doubling it. So 0 is the first even number because it's the double of 0. 2 is the second even number because it's the double of 4 is the third even number because it's the double of etc. 
etc. Because if I didn't say etc., we'd be here all universe. Okay. Every odd number is the previous even number plus one. So the standard way to write an odd number, if you want to do uh, manipulations of odd numbers in um, number theory, the standard way to write an odd number is to say 2n plus 1. So how do you write 1 in terms of 2n plus 1? 2 times Zero. plus 1. 3 is 2 times one. plus, one. right, 5 is 2 times plus 1. So every even number can be written as 2n, where n is any value from 0 to infinity, um, and, at, and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear says, and any odd number is 2n plus 1. So what that just means is for every even number, there's an odd number right after it. So we can group the even, we can group numbers in pairs. 0 and 1, 2 and 3. 4 and 5. That is 2n and 2n plus 1. So if you have a dance and you invite all the even numbers and the odd numbers and you want them all to get along, you just say, whoever you are, whatever your number is, um, if you have... here plus 1. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, so that's... Does that convince you, Joy? Were you the one who's skeptical? That you could. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was skeptical. I can always add one. Yeah. So for every even number, there's an obvious odd number that goes with it, which is the next the number that's next highest. Zero goes with one, two goes with three, four goes with five. Everybody's happy, right? Um, so it doesn't seem that strange to say there are as many even numbers as odd numbers. They're both infinity. But it's very easy to say, look, give me an even number and I'll tell you what odd number hangs out with it. Give me an odd number, I'll tell you what even number hangs out with it. What hangs out with 103? 102. 102. 102. 102. We're going 2 plus 1. We could do it the other way. What hangs out with 1,000? 1,001. So basically, if the even numbers are seats and the odd numbers are butts, I can tell you for any seat, any even number, what but what odd number sits down on it. And there are going to be as many even numbers as odd numbers. That usually doesn't strike people as controversial, that there are as many even numbers as odd numbers, because they just alternate. Even odd, even odd, you're just toggling. If I toggle um, a million times to the right, how many times will I have had to toggle to the left to do that? Probably a million times. Yeah, either a or maybe a million plus one or maybe a million minus one, um, depending on where we start. But it's just a toggle back and forth, even to odd, to even to odd, to even to odd. And so they just pair up, um, kind of like rhymes. Um, so it seems to most, so, so is that convincing to you, Joy, or are you still skeptical? Yeah, I, I, I see that the even and the odd are the same like, number. Like, that makes sense, but like, oh, you said the even is something. OK, yeah, 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 That's, this is just a start. So what we have then is the idea is you can tell how big a set is by saying that it has as many members 
as another set whose size you know. Now, what does it mean to know it? It could be arbitrary. So we will take as the set whose size um, we know arbitrarily to be the set of whole numbers. You know, that's the first thing you learn. The first time you learn infinity, it's 0, comma, 1, comma, 2, comma, 3, comma, dot, dot, dot. No one says, let me explain infinity to you. It's 2, comma, 3, comma, 5, comma, 7, comma, 11, comma, 13, because you just wouldn't know what that was about. But 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, dot, 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 sure, goes on forever. Makes sense. Numbers will go on forever. So we will say that's what an infinite set looks like. It's 0 through infinity. And then we can say that any set the same size as that set is also going to be infinite. So what does it mean for a set to be the same size as another set? Well, the answer is something like the even numbers are obviously the same size as the odd numbers because every even number has an odd number partner and every odd number has an even number partner. If you give me any even number, I can tell you what its odd number partner is. If you give me any odd number, I can tell you what its even number partner is. So each has one partner, so there are as many evens as odds because each even is like a seat and each odd is like a butt, and there isn't anyone that's left out. So they're the same size. So the next natural thing to think is, so the set of even numbers is half the size of the set of the whole numbers, and the set of odd numbers is half the size of the set of whole numbers, and so the set of whole numbers is the set of even numbers plus the set of odd numbers together. So you have sets that are half the size of infinity, but that sounds kind of weird, wait a minute sets that are half the size of infinity, and then if you put them together, then you get infinity. So two half infinities. But then someone says, but wait a second, there's a problem here. If what it means to say that two sets are the same size is that there are as many members of one set as another. And if what as many means is that for every element of one set, there is one element in the other set which is its partner. And if every element in the second set has a partner in the first set. So there, there are no more elements in one set than in the other, no elements which don't find partners and no elements in the second set that don't find partners in the first, then those sets are the same size. Every seat is, on, um, is under a butt, every butt is on a seat, they're partners. Strange partnership, but still, where would we be without our seats? Um, yeah. So, if they all have partners, here's another way of doing partnerships. We could say that well, okay, so now we have to say, what does it mean to have a partner? What it means is that if you give me one half of the couple, I can always tell you what the other half of that couple is, and everyone will agree with me. So let's say I want to say, as I now will, 
that the number of even numbers and the number of whole numbers is the same. Because every even number can be written as 2n, and every whole number can be written as two as n, which is say two n over two. So there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between every yeah. even number and every even. Right. So so if I say three, you say six. And the other way around, if I say eight, you say four. So every whole number, there's an even number that corresponds to it. If I say 20, you say 40. Every whole number has an even number that corresponds to it. The whole number could be even too, but every whole number has an even number that corresponds to it. And every even number has a whole number that corresponds to it. So <coughs> there are no extra even numbers because each of them corresponds to a whole number which is half of that even number. And there are no extra whole numbers because each of them corresponds to an even number which is twice that whole number. Zero corresponds to itself. It's, in, it's zero in one set and zero in the other. So, yeah, so in the set of whole numbers, I have zero, one, two, three. In the set of even numbers, I have zero, two, four, six. Um, and they correspond to each other. Um, the hundredth whole number will be 100, or will actually be 99. The hundredth even number will be 198. In any case, if you ask me what the nth number is in one of those sets, I can tell you what it is, depending on which set. If you say, what is the thousandth number in the whole numbers, I'll say 999. If you say, what's the thousandth number in the even numbers, I'll say 1,998. In each case, I can tell you what the nth, or what, let's say, the mth number in each set is. And because I can do that, those two sets are in one-to-one -one correspondence. So let me just put this in your pipe and smoke it for tomorrow. Um, here is one rule, then, about what's called transfinite arithmetic. An infinite number minus a finite number, this is the simplest rule in transfinite arithmetic, an infinite number minus a finite number gives you an infinite number. Yeah, but what's infinity minus infinity? There, things get trickier. But start with an infinite number minus a finite number will always give you an infinite answer. And think about for tomorrow what an infinite number minus an infinite number will give you. Think about it. Think about it. Think about it. The circular ruins, yeah. Um, Tlan, Upkar, and Orbis Tertius. The one called... Tlan, 